morning again, everybody. And for those of you who are coming in, uh, as we were singing, good morning to you for the first time. The word of the Lord is going to come to us today from the book of Hebrews. We're going to be starting chapter 5 and doing the first 10 verses. This Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1 is where we're beginning. Again, Happy New Year to you all. It's a it's been an eventful one, at least for uh, the folks that I know and for myself as well. My daughter was born on January 5th, and uh, you just have a whole year of getting to know this newborn and having to um, adjust to new life and everything. And I know many of you have had great cataclysmic events happen in your life as well, but we're here and we're about ready to start 24. And as Dave said at the beginning, make sure you sign your checks with the right date tomorrow. But uh, now hear the word of the Lord. From Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word for God's people. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by a God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we sit here under your word to hear what you have to say to us. The words that you've spoken in the words that you have preserved for us through this time. And your word says that your word does not return void until it has accomplished the task for which it was sent. And then I pray that for all of us today, God, that we would not harden our hearts to what we hear today, that you would open our eyes to see, our minds to understand, and our hearts to accept the truths that you are going to give us. As always, Lord, I pray that whatever nonsense comes from my own imagination would be set aside, but what is pure, what is true, what is lovely, whatever is admirable from your word would be heard, would be listened to. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. The book of Hebrews, as I've conveyed before, has some large sections in it in which the author focuses on important themes or concepts that he wants his readers to really understand and grasp so that they can both be confronted and corrected where they're in danger of error but also encouraged and strengthened to continue to persevere in their Christian walk. This is a theme really throughout the, the whole New Testament. We want to be confronted where we're in error, but also encouraged along in our walk. In previous messages, we learned from these sections about Christ's superiority to the Old Testament prophets and the old modes of revelation. We learned about Christ's superiority to angels, his superiority to Moses, to the Old Covenants, and the main theme of this entire book is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. 
In the last message I gave from the book of Hebrews, we entered into the largest section in the book of Hebrews, which extends from the end of chapter 4, which we talked about last time I was up here, and is actually going to continue to the end of chapter 10. It's the section that teaches and explains the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think for many of us, this is an unfamiliar theme, or we think of it as an uninteresting theme. And that seems to be the way most Christians feel about Christ's priesthood because I so very rarely hear or read about Christians talking about it or celebrating it. It doesn't seem like it's a very common theme in American Christianity or American Christian gatherings, does it? And when's the last time that you were in a prayer meeting or praying together with folks and somebody thanked God for the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And when's the last time you sang a song specifically about it or or read a book about Christ's priesthood. We don't think enough about it, but consider just how much time God the Holy Spirit spends on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. It's in all or parts of seven chapters of a 13-chapter book. That means that God has a lot to say about the priesthood of Christ, and he wants us to understand it thoroughly and worshipfully. God doesn't say a single unnecessary or extra word in Scripture. He's not just talking too much, even if you might feel that way when you're starting Chronicles. Now, that means that as followers of Jesus Christ, we must also sit up and listen to what God has to say about it. And I'm not strictly talking about the messages that I'm going to be delivering. I'm not telling you to stay awake while I talk. I know you better than that. But overall, in your personal faith life, give the priesthood of Jesus Christ its appropriate place. If God has so much to say about it, it's something that we also need to pay attention to and listen to. And last week, we celebrated Christmas, and it's a time when we focus our worship on the birth of Jesus Christ, but recall the reasons that he was born. We celebrate the event, rightfully so, but we, have to, can't, we can't ever forget why God took on human flesh and entered into our suffering. He was born to be our king. He was born to be our prophet. He was born to be our redeemer. He was born to live a perfect, sinless life and preach repentance and faith to the lost. And Jesus Christ needed to be born so that he could become our high priest. Hebrews 2.17, which we looked at a while ago, says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ had to be born into humanity in order to become our merciful and our faithful high priest. There are many reasons why he took on human flesh, but his humanity, his incarnation, his mission to this earth is inextricably bound to his office as our great high priest. The priesthood of Christ isn't an extra or abstract theological concept for the nerds and seminaries. It's, it's truth for life. It's to be understood, it's to be embraced, to be loved, and to be celebrated by us. God the Holy Spirit has a lot to say about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That means, as I've just said, that we also need to pay more regard to Christ's priesthood as well. And if it's important to God, it must also be important to us. That's what I call theological math. And this also means that we need to understand that we, 
yes, even we here, sophisticated 21st century American Christians, need a priest. We're not over that. We haven't moved past this, this point of uh, salvific history. We need a priest. If we're ever to approach God, we need a priest. And this will never change. This is always going to be this way. Christ is our priest forever. This office of high priest that he now occupies will never come to an end in all of eternity. He's a priest forever, and God has sworn it. Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted in our passage today, says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. We need a priest. The Lord God knows we need a priest. He created a priesthood, and why he even now has a high priest on the throne who acts on behalf of men in relation to God. We need one. I may sound like I'm just repeating myself over something that seems like a simple concept to you, but the fact that so many Christians don't speak enough about Christ's priesthood uh, shows me that in American Christian culture, at least, we either don't care enough or don't understand well enough our great need for a priest or what our high priest does for us. Have you stopped and actually thought right now, at this moment, you have, if you're in Christ, a high priest acting on your behalf. And why does the God the Holy Spirit have so much to say about this and his church so little? And I've just shown you with, the, with Psalm 110 verse that the priesthood of Christ even shows up in the Old Testament. This isn't a new concept which, which uh, emerged with, new, with the New Covenant. For centuries before Christ came, God was telling his people that he would give them an eternal high priest who would act as our mediator for all time. Another of these prophecies is in 1 Samuel 2.35 where God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful high priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And God's been telling us about his permanent high priest for thousands of years so why don't we remember it? Well, part of the reason I, I feel is, is that we, it's our historical theological heritage. We're 21st century Americans who, through various channels, are generally inheritors of Protestant Reformation theology. Though, for, well, say leading up to the Reformation, and even today, in, in Roman Catholicism, there are men who are called priests, who during Mass offer up Christ's body in the form of communion bread and wine as a sacrifice. They don't believe this represents Christ's body. They say this is Christ's body that we're, that we're raising up and uh, representing. So, In other words, every time there's a Mass, this priest, who's not Jesus, is offering up Jesus as a sacrifice. What's that mean? In, in an oversimplified word, and don't mean any disrespect for this simplistic explanation of Roman Catholic theology, but in the Catholic theological system, you still need a human priesthood, and Christ's sacrifice wasn't once for all. You have a weak, fallible, sinful, mortal priest supposedly offering a sacrifice on your behalf again and again and again and again. In reaction to this unbiblical system, this was, the, this was in the Reformation, the Protestant reformers emphasized that it's not a priesthood of many men with the repeated sacrifice of Jesus Christ that Scripture teaches, 
but the Lord Jesus Christ as our permanent eternal high priest and his sacrifice on the cross, which is once final and brought atonement for our sins. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, which we'll get to seven years from now, says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ's priesthood, once for all, a secured eternal redemption, his own blood, this is what the Bible teaches. So following this, this split, we didn't have this visible priesthood with, their, with the mass and the sacrifices like there once was. And so with no longer any visible priesthood and a growing number of preachers who didn't preach Christ's priesthood, this truth was kind of put in the closet and forgotten like your old karate outfit. And now you're probably only going to hear about it in churches that practice expositional preaching because the pastor can't skip it if he finds it boring or irrelevant. So why the history lesson? Because we need to understand the significance of what the book of Hebrews says. We've largely lost our knowledge and our praise for any essential truth. We need a priest. If we don't have a high priest, we don't have a sacrifice for sins. And if we don't have a sacrifice for sins, we don't have peace with God or access to God. Does that sound serious to you? The original readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians who recognized that the long-awaited Messiah taught by the Old Testament had come, and he was Jesus of Nazareth, born in a manger in Bethlehem. And for this belief in Jesus Christ, they were cast out of the synagogues and out of the temple worship system. So what's the result for these Jewish Christians? No Jewish high priests, no Jewish sacrificial system. Does this sound serious? It was much more of a real problem for them, uh, and I mean real problem as in they, it was in front of their face than it, was, than it is for us. And unless you've come from Roman Catholicism, which many of you have, you probably haven't lost a priesthood. You haven't had this shift where I just lost my entire religious system. I lost my priest. I lost my sacrifice. Now what do I have? But they did. They lost it all. So for these first century Jewish Christians, they knew that they need a priest, and they knew they had needed a sacrifice for sin. There was no ambiguity for them in this regard. So what did they do? Well, they become tempted to go back. The first thing that their, uh, their uh, Jewish brethren would have said, the non-believing Jewish brethren would have said, is where's your priest? The most fundamental thing that you need for relationship to God, you don't have because you've decided to follow this, this Jesus instead of staying with us. So they become tempted to revert to Judaism and to receive the benefits of a priesthood in a sacrificial system by denying Christ. And for us modern people too, even if we only have a vague awareness of our need for a priest or an intercessor, we know that there's a chasm between us and God that needs to be crossed. And all of man's religions are created to seek a way to cross this chasm, even no matter whatever else they tell you about it. We also know in our hearts that there's a brokenness in the relationship that requires some payment or sacrifice to be made right again. We just don't know what the bill is or how seriousness the crime actually is. We just have this vague awareness. 
and why is that? If you stop and think about it, why do all people everywhere know that there's a separation between themselves and God? All people have this instinct. It's common to humanity everywhere. Everybody believes that if there's an afterlife, then being good and doing good will get you to the good place. But what is this? It's a notion of sacrifice. Don't do the bad things you want to do. Do the good things you ought to do. That's, that's the exchange. That's the sacrifice. Superficial, small one, but that's where, where, where a lot of people feel. The problem is that most people don't realize the depths of the terrible situation. They don't realize how bad the situation actually is. Now, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's guilty of sin. No one has a clean record. We all have sinned and fall short of God's standards and glory. We acknowledge that, though. Everybody knows that. Even the Enlightenment thinkers who were saying that God is totally unknowable and we can't really know anything about him will admit that there's, people have a sin nature. You know, people say, this is the most easily proven theological concept in the world, that people are prone to sin. We know that. Only a sociopath would say that nobody's perfect. So what? Well, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Oh, that. We've all sinned, and the result is that sin is a death penalty. The death of eternal death and judgment under God's righteous wrath against sin. Psalm 7, 11 through 13 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly shafts, his deadly weapons, making his fiery shafts. This is why our good deeds can't make the payment and why only spilled blood can atone for sin. The penalty of sin is death, not good works. This is the bill. If you imagine you're sitting at a restaurant, which is insanely expensive these days, by the way, and they give you your, your bill with a little receipt on it, and you put like a five Skittles on the tab. Like, that's not the payment. This isn't what we're asking. The payment isn't good works for your sin. The payment is death. This is what we owe. We're already supposed to be doing good works. That's not extra credit. It's like, yeah, I killed somebody, but I'm not going to do it anymore. That balances it out, right? You, you were already not supposed to be killing anybody. You're guilty. So how the penalty is death, and only by death can sin be dealt with. But how does this work? Under the old covenant system, a high priest would offer such a sacrifice on behalf of men to God. The thing is, we still need this to happen. Because all of us have sinned and broken God's law. But if we don't have the Jewish high priest and we don't have the temple any longer, how can we have peace with God for our sin? This is the conundrum of the book of Hebrews. Or the Hebrews reading it, that is. Well, the answer is that God provides a high priest and God provides a sacrifice. Well, how? Who's qualified to hold the office of high priest? So if we don't have the sacrificial system under the old covenant anymore, we still need a priest. How are we going to solve this problem? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews now answers that for his shaky readers. Verses 1 through 4 of our passage read, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins 
just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In these opening verses of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews lays out several important truths about high, God's high priests. The first is that they're chosen from among men. They're chosen from among men. They're not angels. They're human. They're not angels. They're not Maiar. They're not demigods. They're human beings. The second is they act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. The people don't offer the sacrifices or go directly to God. The high priest does. He goes on their behalf. Third, they're able to care for the people by leading them and shepherding them, instructing them and dealing gently with them because high priests are human themselves. They have understanding of the weaknesses of people because they themselves are also weak. Fourth, the high priests are chosen. They don't appoint themselves. Although during the time of Jesus and right before the, the Herod and the Roman authorities were appointing the high priests, but under God's, uh, under God's ordering, they don't choose themselves. And in fact, in the Old Testament, bad things happen to pe people who tried to make, take this role for themselves. And these are the, the minimum qualifications for high priest. A human being who was appointed by God to act on behalf of men in relation to God and offer sacrifices for sin. So the author establishes the duties, he establishes the qualifications for the priest, and then he continues in verses 5 to 6, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So also Christ. Our author says, in essence, here are the qualifications and the duties of a priest, a human man who is chosen and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer sacrifices for sins. He deals gently with people. He sympathizes with their weakness. He's suffered as people have suffered. So also Christ. You who have a need for a high priest, chosen by God to act on your behalf, do indeed have one. God has declared the Lord Jesus Christ to be his only son and Messiah and has appointed his son to be our high priest, not after the order of Aaron, which is passing away, but after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, our king and our prophet, is to be our chosen high priest for all time. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to talk more about the significance of Melchizedek um, and what it means that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7, if you want to read ahead. But for now, what's important for us to know is that it is distinct and it is superior to the line of high priests descended from Aaron and that served in the physical temple and tabernacle. This is, this is the point the author's making. The priest we have in Christ is superior to the priest that we had in the Old Covenant. Again, the point is that the order of Melchizedek is greatly superior to the priests who served in the physical temple. To have a priest from the order of Melchizedek is to be desired over a priest from the line of Aaron. So this means that the Lord Jesus Christ is a greater high priest for these first century Jewish Christians than the high priest that they lost when they believed in the Lord Jesus. And it means that they have a high priest who will minister to them 
and intercede with them forever, and that not one who will die need to be replaced like Aaron was. So this, it means that the very God they worship, Yahweh himself, has chosen a high priest, Jesus Christ. So the author of the Hebrews could say, you want to go back? You want to follow the old priests? Why? The God you are trying to connect with through them has chosen a new high priest. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now, stop and consider everything we've talked about so far. You know, when we first read this passage, when we're talking about the change in the covenants and everything, it can kind of seem like maybe this is an obscure, boring, or irrelevant passage, and maybe this should have been the Sunday you should have stayed in and slept in, saved up your energy for tonight, for those of you who are going to make it to 1030 before you give up. It made a big difference for the first century Jewish Christians, but how can all of this high priest talk be significant? It's significant because we have seen that as Jesus Christ was born to be our Redeemer, he was born to be human so that he could supersede the old order of priests and be a great high priest, not only for those who were moving away from the earthly temple, so not only from Jewish Christians who believed in Christ, but for all of those outside of the nation of Israel who would call on the name of the Lord. Who's the great high priest of the Jews? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the great high priest of the Gentiles? The Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that the nations and the peoples from all over the surface of the earth can find peace and reconciliation with God and with each other. It is through the Prince of Peace and through the Lord of Lords that those who were formerly far off can be made into a people of God. Through Jesus Christ as great high priest and his sacrifice for sins of those who believe. Ephesians 2.11, so this is picking up right after where Emily read, and that wasn't planned, but Ephesians 2.11 to 22 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is, those who were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, which is made, by, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We had a high priest, the Aaronic high priest, the Levitical high priest in the temple. In order to get to God, that's where you had to go. 
That's who you had to come through. And people from other nations did come to worship God in Jerusalem. But Christ has now broken down the dividing wall. Where there was a wall between Jew and Gentile, Christ broke it down. And instead of two people, there are now one people of God. What does this mean? That Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, it means that the hope of the world has come. And that there were, there were two people, Gentiles and Jews. God has made one people, the people of God, comprised of worshipers from all nations and races and ethnicities who have the Lord Jesus Christ as their great high priest acting on their behalf in relation to God. You see this, the end of this story in, in the Revelation, in chapter 7, when it says people gather from all ethne around the throne praising God. Ethne is like uh, the word, word, where we get our word ethnicity. It means peoples from all over now. Not just one race, not just one nation. All ethne, pantata ethne. And it means that to go back to the physical temple to try to revert from Christianity to Judaism or any other world system is to try to go back and rebuild that dividing wall of hostility that Christ tore down. It's to try to go back to a sacrificial system that cannot properly deal with your sin. And it is to ignore Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. It means to go back to the hostility that Christ overcame on the cross. So the question put to the original readers and to us is, why would you ever want to go back? We live in a time called the age of the great dechurching. People who had to some degree or another professed Christ are leaving the church in enormous numbers. You've probably heard of the Great Awakening, you know, when so many people were coming to faith. This is like a reverse, like the same, the same uh, staggering numbers of people fluctuating through the church doors, only people are leaving. What does the book of Hebrews have to say to people who think that it's better for them to abandon Christ and go back to the world? What does the book of Hebrews have to say to you whenever you think that maybe you tried Christianity and it didn't work for you? Now, I never understand it when people say that. I tried Christianity and it didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? Christ's death didn't atone for your sins? What, what were you hoping for? Or maybe when you think your life would be easier if you gave up professing Christ. But you know what? In many ways, your life would be easier if you abandoned Christ, gave in to your sin for a time, and then you die. And then what then? Who would stand as your priest, interceding for you when you stand before the terrible wrath of God and judgment? So with the author of the book of Hebrews, I ask as well, why would you ever go back to the chains and the slavery of sin and renounce the glorious Redeemer who came from heaven to earth to offer salvation to all. Our passage continues in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born into our humanity 2,000 years ago and lived a truly human life for over 30 years. In his life, he prayed and he made supplications to God, many of which are recorded in Scripture. He suffered and he was tempted like we are. He grew and he learned what it meant to follow God, the Father, 
and he became obedient to the point of death on a Roman cross. He lived like us, yet without sin. And having lived a perfect life, and having loved his own, he went willingly to the cross to be that sacrifice himself, to die in our place, to be our sacrifice for sin. And having completed his earthly ministry and having become the sacrificial lamb who takes away our sin, the text says that he became the source of salvation to all who obey him. You know, in our time and culture, we really don't like the word obedience, and we especially don't like it when a, a preacher says obedience is a non-negotiable part of the Christian life. But it says that here, in just one of many places in God's word. Jesus Christ himself was obedient unto death, and he is the source of salvation for those who obey him. And would we think that it's nice that our king was obedient to God, but we aren't bound to be obedient to our king? Would we say that the Lord of glory can submit to the will of the Father, but we will not? That's playing with hellfire. If you would have Jesus Christ as your savior, as your high priest, as your prophet, then he must also be your king. We don't make him our king. He is the king. We only choose to submit or rebel against him. But why on earth, after everything that we've just heard from God's word, would any person want to rebel? And yet, even those who know better refuse to submit to Christ's lordship and obey him. They try to either get rid of the people preaching God's truth or to get rid of God himself. And this happens all the time in churches and is a source of where much of our division comes from. Disobedience to God's word, that when confronted attacks the messenger and even the word from God the messenger brings. Unrepentant, bitter hearts that need to take a serious look in the spiritual mirror because God is not mocked. The rebellious nation of Israel killed the prophets that God sent to them, so God sent his son, the rightful king, descended from David. And the Jewish religious leaders would not have him as their king. When Pilate said, should we release Jesus, their king, what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. But who's your king? And who's your high priest? And what sacrifices are you trying to offer to God to save yourself? God has chosen his high priest. There's no one else. These are the questions for us this morning, and these are the truths that should inspire our, our worship and our adoration. There is a king and high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ Emmanuel. It means God with us. Think about what that means. God with us. Another the most incredibly comforting thing? God with us. So when you're feeling tempted to despair, when you're feeling prone to wander, when the world tries to lure you away from following Christ, then remember who we have is our eternal high priest. And then turn away from the world of death and turn your face toward the eternal Lord of glory who suffered and died for your sake and who now lives as our king, as our prophet, and as our great high priest. Turn from sadness and despair to joy, to forgiveness, and to worship. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's pray. Lord, in our context, it's hard for us to grasp the significance of these truths we're so far removed from temple worship and priests that it just seems like something totally irrelevant to us. Yet as we said in the beginning of the message, you have so much to say about this. And if we aren't moved this morning, if we aren't 
even awake this morning. Let this, let this sit in our, in our hearts, Lord, and let us not be able to forget about it. Let us think about it during this week and beyond. What does it mean to have Jesus Christ as our great high priest? That we need a great high priest, that you've provided one. Grow our hearts, Lord, in worship of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Please stand with us for this last song. Um, in